welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to author Abby Greaves. Abby's debut novel, The Silent Treatment, was published in April 2020 and came out in paperback in October. The book, where the two main protagonists are a couple that haven't said a word to each other for six months, is quite simply brilliant. We first met Abby when she agreed to come along to one of the meetings for our book club, the Macy Books Cozy Club. Our members love reading The Silent Treatment and it was great for them all to chat to Abby about her experiences as a debut author. Abby, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, thank you for having me, Sarah. Well, it's so great to have you on. I mean, like I say, when you spoke to our cosy clubbers, they were so thrilled with your book and got so into it. And and we we did a slightly different approach with the month when we work with you, because normally we offer a very wide range of books. But in fact, what we try to do is funnel them all towards your book that month. And their response was so strong. So it's lovely to be speaking to you again. Oh, it's brilliant chatting with everyone. It's quite unusual, I think, as an author that you get, oh, perhaps this is just for me as a debut, but it does feel rather unusual to kind of get that feedback in real time from such an array of readers, people who will willingly say that this might not have been their first choice of book, but the description by your brilliant booksellers was something that compelled them or people who read a lot in a similar genre. And to get that feedback in real time, it was great. I've got to say, the Cozy Club, 10 out of 10. I really loved being there. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad you did. So let's get on to it. Let's talk about you. Um, I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, by going back to your childhood. You grew up in Oxford, just down the road from us, actually. We're just 15 minutes away. With your parents and an older brother. What was life like for you as a child? I had a very good childhood, which I'm sure my parents will be relieved to hear me say. (laughs) And... I was that typical bookish child. We always had books in the house, library books, books from my parents' childhoods, I suppose, that they'd brought with them. House kind of falling down, really, um, under the weight (laughs) of books. And yeah, I, as you said, I grew up in Oxford, sort of between Wolvercote and Summertown, which is near this beautiful kind of big green expanse called Port Meadow, which features in the Simon Treatment. So there was a lot along with the books. There was uh, a bit of the outdoors too. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place. I love going back to Oxford now to see my parents. There's just something about it that's always, and I wonder if it always will, just feels like home. Yeah, and that particular part of Oxford really is stunning. Port Meadow's great and Summertown's one of my favourite little neighbourhoods in the city. Were you an avid reader as a child? Did you read a lot? I did. And my earliest memories are all reading. My grandfather on my mother's side was an absolutely voracious reader. And he looked after me before I went to school. So I was reading with him then. And my first novel, The Science Scene, was actually dedicated to him for that reason. So yes, I always found in particular that reading was a huge escape. 
I was quite an anxious child and an anxious adult, I suppose, as well. And I think there is this quite magical feeling when you find the right book that just can take you away from that feeling, even if only for 15 minutes or so. And that was something that I definitely pinpoint back to my childhood, discovering that feeling and it being quite addictive. Yeah, we hear this time and time again, that whole kind of feeling of escapism. We talk about it a lot on the podcast, but obviously we talk about it a lot with customers in the shop. And that whole thing as well about finding a book or a series of books that when you when you discover how much you love it, knowing that there's more to be read and the excitement around that is just so brilliant. I don't think anything else replaces it. No, it really, really, really doesn't. So what was the first book you remember reading? The first book that I remember reading with enough detail to feel certain of it was a book called The Flower Fairies of the Garden, which was compiled by Cicely Mary Barker. And it's a beautiful book, if I remember. I had it in a hardcover, which was quite unusual, with a laminate feel to it and these old Edwardian drawings of flower fairies, almost kind of like nymphs, I suppose. Lots of them all ornately decorating that. And it was, as I say, a compendium of stories. I don't know if you necessarily call them short stories or just kind of snippets. And I suppose what's strange about the fact that it's the first book I remember is that I was by no means growing up your stereotypical girly girl. I wasn't the sort to kind of necessarily gravitate towards princesses or fairies or anything of that sort. But it was a book that had been gifted to me. Now it escapes me who, in fact, it was who gifted that to me. But I remember it because my mother kept it in the dashboard of her car. And every day before I went into school, which was a source of great anxiety for me for the first few years, at least, we would make sure to have 10 or 15 minutes reading. And I'd crawl through into the front seat of the car and we'd read a few pages And looking back now, I think it was a rather smart move on my mother's part to find the book that was able to take me out of those moments of intense um, nervousness about the day and to just kind of settle me a bit before she inevitably had to leave and go off to work. So I wonder if my experiences reading it are what is just as memorable as the book itself. That said, it is utterly gorgeous, and I've actually just bought a copy for my niece. So hopefully it will continue to work its magic on the next generation too. Oh, I love that. I love hearing of books being handed down generation to generation. It's so amazing. And it's so wonderful how some of these books really do stand the test of time. Funny, when you mentioned the Flower Fairies, it took me back because I was also a fan of the Flower Fairies, and I was also a tomboy. (laughs) (laughs) So a bit contradictory, but obviously a theme. But we actually have a regular customer who buys an awful lot of books from us, um, a lot of secondhand books, which she does lots of crafts with and does stuff with her. I think it's her grand nieces and nephews. And she constantly goes back to the flower fairies. So since I've had the shop, I've had this like running flow of flower fairies books coming through the shop. And I haven't seen them for years. So it's been really lovely kind of re-familiarizing myself with them again. So They're so great. I like hearing that because it's not your classic childhood story. You know, there are some classics that always come up, be they Roald Dahl books, Enid Blyton books, Black Beauty, other things. But I think to some people, if you said the flower fairies, you get a kind of quizzical eyebrow. So I'm very pleased to hear that they're getting some good sales through mostly books, at least. 
<laughs> yeah. And I do think, though, that an awful lot of them are, like you said, people gifting them, uh, the older generation gifting them to young children. So I'm not sure they necessarily would be picked off a shelf, but I think once they have got them in their hands, it, they work their magic. So your love of books clearly continued into your teen years because you made the decision to study English literature at Cambridge University. And after graduating, you spent three years working in publishing. And I understand you wrote your first novel, The Silent Treatment, whilst working as an assistant to a literary agent in London. These days, after moving around a bit, you're now living in Brighton with your boyfriend. What's life like for you? Well, I'm sure like a lot of people right now, life looks a little different to how we imagined on our third lockdown. But I've got to say that at the moment, I feel perhaps a little resigned to that and things are quite calm. My normal days do have a routine of sorts. I know that not all writers like a routine, but for me, I find it helpful just as a way to kind of get myself prepared, I suppose, to try and get some sort of steady flow of words on the page. And my usual routine is up fairly early about six-ish and I'll do half an hour of yoga and I hope that will sort out my writer's back and then I'll have breakfast I'll get dressed and I'll usually be at my desk by about eight-ish trying to cut down on procrastination (laughs) not doing so well but as soon as I can I'll get on to the sort of writing portion of what I have to do for that day so if I'm writing a first draft I really like to hit 2,000 words a day, which is a sort of magic number that I think a lot of writers throw out. I wonder if it's the sweet spot of making progress yet not exhausting yourself. But as I say, that doesn't happen every single day. If I'm not on a first draft, however, if I'm editing, then my hours feel a bit more like a kind of normal job from eight-ish through to five-ish with a break for lunch, a break for a walk. And then finishing a little earlier, there's other things I need to do, replying to emails, doing my accounts, anything that's publicity or whatever. And I would try and have a little bit of the time at the end of the day to um, do a bit of reading of the proofs, um, the early copies of books that I'm being sent very kindly by other authors to look at, maybe offer a quote. I try and check in with social media when I can. But my New Year's resolution is to try and do a lot less of that, I think, because it does feel like it kind of can cloud your head a bit too. So in answer to your question, life looks fairly structured Monday to Friday, but that's how I like it for now. And I do really appreciate having a writer's routine. I always love hearing about other writers' routines as well. So (laughs) it's nice to contribute my own. Yeah, I always ask the question. I'm always fascinated to find out how different writers work because there's no two people that have the same routine. And that's what's so magical about it because clearly all of you have managed to create a book that's doing very well. So clearly your routine works well for you. What's really interesting is hearing you say you're kind of resigned to life in lockdown. We started doing this podcast series as a response to lockdown. We used to do a lot of author events in the shop and at local venues, and obviously that all stopped. We tried to do some live author events on Zoom and and, and so on, and they just weren't amazing for us. We didn't really click with them. So we decided to try something different with the podcast. And looking back on some of the episodes, we started recording in August. So we were out of lockdown one, but I think people were still reeling from the effects of it. And it was still very fresh and very different and very new. 
And it's so interesting speaking to people now because obviously we're recording for series two and we're recording this in January and everyone's very much like, okay, well, we're back to it again. It's so interesting how all of our lives and our expectations of everything has changed so much in such a relatively short space of time. I completely agree. And I think something I'm quite interested in now, interested and perhaps a little bit anxious about, I suppose, is we will come out of this. But I think it might be a little short-sighted to think that kind of everyone will leap back into life as it was, inverted commas, all in the same way and all at the same moment. And don't get me wrong, I am I'm itching um, to see my friends and family. I'm itching to eat in a restaurant again, to go to parties, to have some fun, to go to the cinema and everything. But I think you know, when you've gone through something that has been a sort of, I suppose for one for a better word, a huge trauma socially, even not taking into consideration the individual grief of it all, I don't think it's going to be as simplistic as jumping right back into something. So I wonder if now I'm just thinking to myself, let's enjoy, endure one of the two, this kind of calmness now, try and get something productively on the page so that when we do get to that place I'm maybe feeling more settled than I might otherwise be yeah I think that's really sensible I think you're totally right the things that we always took for granted I think won't be taken for granted in the same way and I think behaviors will definitely still be will be permanently altered in a lot of ways a lot of people are turning to books at the moment more so than normal it seems is that something you're finding are you reading a lot at the moment yes and no I think Definitely in the aftermath of the initial outbreak, when everything was shutting, when everything was quite terrifying, really, I think like a lot of people, I was hardwired to the news. I was just constantly refreshing my news app and then contrasting it to the BBC news and everything else. And when you're consuming so much, reading so much of that, it makes it very hard to then stop and pick up your book or your e-reader or whatever. So in the initial period, I wasn't reading so much, but I eased myself back in with books that were very pacey. So either thrillers or rom-coms, I read quite a lot of in May or June to get back into it. And from there until about Christmas, I was back into my usual flow of reading. I didn't, you know, after the few books just to get me back in there, I wasn't just choosing books that I felt might be an easy read or a quick read. If anything, I was actually strangely and probably for the first time in my life gravitating towards quite long books, epic narratives, some historical fiction, which again, I don't naturally gravitate towards. And over Christmas, I had a good opportunity to catch up on some new books that are coming out this year. I'm afraid to say that where at right now, I seem to have gone back a bit to square one um, as I was. But at least now I know that it will come back. I know that if I just pick the right, just one or two books to kind of dip your toe back in and then you're kind of away. So, yeah, it's about weaning yourself off the news and the terror and everything there and um, trying to get back into it. So, yes, I suppose that is to say I am reading um, a lot and perhaps different sorts of books to what I might normally read as well so that can only be good yeah it's funny what you said about crimes and rom-com because when we break for Christmas obviously the team was we, we actually were very lucky we had a very busy December in the shop so we're all pretty tired it's been a very emotional year and we in the same way as you mentioned get 
pre-publication proof copies so that we can read them before they come out to the general public. And we were kind of dividing the proofs up. And we really found that the the kind of the quite easy reading books were the ones that went pretty quickly. I've gone firmly into the chiclet uplet type genre with the occasional crime thriller thrown in. Anything more than that at the moment is probably just a bit too much to deal with for me personally. What was the last book you read? The last book I read was not an easy read, um, <laughs> having said that. It was Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, which has just won the Booker, and I'm sure many of your listeners and customers will be familiar with it. It was the setting with that book that appealed to me. I'm not the sort of reader who naturally, you know, will just kind of on impulse buy the big prize winners to find out why they won and what the buzz is about. Not because I don't think it's justified, but because I just tend to be more led by plots that appeal more than the prizes per se. But it was the setting with Shuggy Bane. And that was because, as you said earlier, I have moved around rather a lot. And last year I was living in Scotland, in Edinburgh, not in Glasgow, where Shuggy's set. But I did spend some time in Glasgow and I absolutely loved the city. And I couldn't bring to mind a book that I'd read set there, although I'm sure there must be one, if not more. And it's not an easy read, as I say. There is great poverty, there is great heartbreak, alcoholism, trauma of all various degrees. But the relationship between Shuggy and Agnes, his mother, is absolutely exquisite and it pulls you the whole way through the book. It has a beautiful ending, redemptive whilst also being... 100% authentic or so it felt to me and I read it it's a heavy book as well um, (laughs) over Christmas with aching arms lying in bed with my uh, (laughs) biceps sort of tense reading it above my head but I adored it and if I hadn't managed to wreck the dust jacket I would be passing it around to everyone instead I will be buying copies which is what we like to hear anyway it's really exquisite and I think a very very worthy winner of the book of this year yeah I haven't come across anyone that's read it that hasn't got a lot out of it it seems to be consistently positive feedback like you say not a light read but a very very well written book do you always have one book on the go or are you one of those people that can have multiple books running concurrently usually one and I like to kind of read my book throughout the day every day so I don't get those lulls I'll read a bit with breakfast and again with lunch then as I say if I have some time at the end of the day I'll try and set aside an hour to read before I get on with dinner and you know again before bed so I don't allow for those lulls that said I don't feel too bad about putting a book down if it's not for me I would much rather put it down and accept that maybe I'm not in the right headspace for the book or perhaps it just doesn't it isn't a great match with me for whatever reason than to kind of push myself to continue with something and then kind of decide to just go for the TV instead. Sometimes if something really juicy is there, if I get a copy of a book that I've been wanting to read for a while, I'll sort of start that and then come back to something else. But it's not something I love doing. It's something I've done at the moment and I won't name the book that I've put down in favour of the book that I'm reading. But, you know, it does make you think, oh, am I going to go back to that or am I just going to start something new? But I've always got more books than I can read, you know, in physical copies of books. I have piles and piles and then I read an awful lot on my Kindle as well. 
Um, there must be thousands of books on there. So I'm never without a book, I should say. Yeah. And what you said there about being able to put a book aside is interesting because that really divides opinion. I mean, that can be like a game changer with people's conversations <laughs> because some people are really adamant that, you know, once you started a book, you mustn't stop until you finished it. But it's interesting talking to people because when you compare it to something like a TV show, somebody I interviewed previously said, well, you know, if you were watching a Netflix series and you decided two episodes in, you didn't really like it. Well, you wouldn't force yourself to read the whole thing. So why is this pressure to do it with a book? It's a really good analogy. I think it's a very good approach to be able to say, do you know, it's not right for me. No, and it's, I've actually never heard that analogy about Netflix, but it's completely true. And I think with reviewing, which obviously now, you know, everything is online, people can read reviews, people will say, oh, DNF, which I have learned stands for did not finish with a book. And often people will say it in great frustration, but I don't think there's any sort of shame on the reader or indeed the writer if someone just puts the book down and so long as they're prepared to, you know, it just wasn't for them or maybe it wasn't for them at that moment because that's much better than pushing to the end of the book and then feeling gravely aggrieved that you've been upset by a heavy book at a moment when you're dealing with a lot of emotional upheaval yourself or that you've persevered with a very frivolous summer novel that doesn't speak to the kind of moment we're in. You know, it's much better to just put it aside and to find something else you like. And you can always come back to it. There's been times when I've started books um, and a good example of one might be Where the Crawdads Sing, which is a beautiful, beautiful book. And I'm sure many of your listeners will have read it. Um, when I first picked it up, for some reason, I couldn't get into it. And so I put it aside. I probably read, I don't know, 10, 20 books. And then I came back to it. And on that second reading, I adored it. And looking back now, I wonder if it was when the first time I picked it up, I just moved house, obviously, all the upheaval that comes with that. And it is a book that really invests you having a long stretch to kind of sit down there and get into it because it's a different world. It's set in the 60s, North Carolina, a kind of unusual marshland setting. It was little wonder that when I myself was feeling pretty disorientated, I wasn't ready to be re-disorientated with that environment. But that always reminds me, it's a good example. You know, if I put aside a book, I wouldn't necessarily then put it in the charity pile. I'd just keep it on the shelf for a couple of months or a couple of years, even down the line when it might be a better fit to me. Yeah, so true. So true. So being a bookseller, I regularly hear about people talking about the book that they read, the pivotal point in their life that really had a major impact on them. I really believe that. I think that everyone that reads has a book like that, whether that's impacted them professionally or personally, but it's just spoken to them. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? It's a tricky question because I can think of books that have had that effect that you describe for all sorts of different reasons. Recently, I read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert that spoke to me at a time when I was really struggling with my writing. She writes very powerfully and I think quite profoundly about the joy that can be found in creativity and never jettisoning that even when the struggle really kicks in. But the book that I thought I really wanted to talk about in this instance insofar as I found it changed my life was Elizabeth is Missing by Emma Healy which if I'm correct I think came out in 2014 so not long after I graduated and I remember reading it in a bit of a post-graduation slump when I had no idea what I was going to do I was working I suppose zero hours contracts or just you know short-term jobs if you will waitressing at a pub doing a bit of teaching 
I didn't know what my long-term career held. All I really knew was that I was absolutely exhausted from three years of reading very big, very classic books. And I picked this up. I wonder if I just took it from my parents' shelves. And it was the first contemporary fiction that I had read in a really long time. And I think it changed my life because it reminded me that books are fundamentally to be enjoyed. And for anyone who hasn't read Elizabeth is Missing, it tells a story of a woman with dementia who is convinced that her friend is missing, but obviously no one is necessarily going to believe her when her own memory is faltering. And it had a brilliant tagline, something like, how can you solve a mystery if you can't remember the clues? And it is enjoyable and it's entertaining, but it's also tender and moving and it's powerful. And it was the first book, I think, that made me think that I wanted to continue working with books. So when I'd had a few months off and I was in a place to, to start thinking about what I wanted to do longer term, instead of sort of pushing the idea of publishing or the books industry more widely to the back of my mind, I did think about those jobs and I was fortunate enough after a couple of months to find one. And that was really where my own journey began when I started working with contemporary fiction in publishing, as you said, at the beginning of the interview, and from there thinking about writing myself. So yes, it really did change my life, perhaps not in the ways that I thought it would, but it's definitely, as a story, it definitely reminds me that, you know, just coming at something from the point of enjoyment can lead to something huge, you know? So, yes, Elizabeth is Missing by Emma Healy. Always very grateful that I read that book, and I do recommend it an awful lot too. Yeah, I actually read that fairly recently myself, and get, I agree it's an excellent book. It's interesting because you, obviously, you're a big book fan as a child. You studied English literature at university. You then moved into the world of publishing. Did you always have it in your mind that you could or potentially would like to write a book? Or was that never on your agenda? It's a really interesting question. And I think I fluctuated. When I was a child, I remember writing. I loved writing at school, creative tasks. And when I say at school, I mean in primary school. I remember writing what I'm sure is an awful series of stories about a penguin who owned a shop in Oxford. And I remember there was a brilliant cafe. I don't know if you've ever been to it. It's on North Parade. It's no longer there, unfortunately. It's called On the Hoof. And the woman who owns it called Debbie used to pin my stories up on the board. And it was still, to this day, one of the proudest things that's ever happened to me. So that must have been when I was about (laughs) seven or eight. But something obviously happened when I went to secondary school and sort of continued through till my mid-twenties whereby I not stopped liking writing, but I stopped thinking of myself as a writer. And I've kind of dreaded whenever there would be a sort of creative writing task, because I associated it with sort of having to read it out to the class. Or I remember at university, there were lots of poetry societies and the people who wrote seemed to me, and this might be completely incorrect, but they seemed a certain sort of person. They were very trendy and they read lots of philosophers and they had great ease with all these references that I didn't even get and you know did many sort of creative writing exercises which I'm sure are very useful but you know from the perspective of a bumblebee or 
you know, something <laughs> like that. It all felt quite avant-garde and it felt esoteric and it felt a million miles away from me, who I felt was quite ordinary and who, yes, as I said, I read hugely, but I also read magazines. I watch a lot of reality television. I thought perhaps, perhaps I wasn't, you know, a writer to my core in the way these people with the trendy haircuts and clothes were. So I sort of put it to one side. And one thing I'm very grateful for when I did work in publishing was that it sort of opened my eyes, not all to all good things, you know, it opens your eyes to the fact that it's a business, it's very hard, it takes a lot out of authors, but it also opened my eyes to the fact that real life authors weren't necessarily the archetype that I'd built up in my mind, I think, fallaciously. They were normal people, they were people like me, they were mums and dads, they were people who you know, could be my next door neighbor. They wrote all different sorts of books, not just the sorts of books I would have studied at university. And they also wrote first drafts that didn't look like anything in the published book. So all those ideas, I think, together created a kind of idea soup that made me think that, yes, maybe one day I'd write a book with the important caveat, so long as I had a good idea for one. And I think that was something else that publishing taught me. And you'll know this as a bookseller yourself. There are so many books out there. How are you going to write a book that stands out enough simply to get published, let alone, you know, stands out enough to be picked from a shelf? So I knew I had to find that idea. And when that idea did come, and it was the idea for the silent treatment, this idea of a happily, inverted commas, married couple who'd been together for a number of years but hadn't spoken for six months. When I had that idea, I thought, right, this is an idea that I haven't seen before. It's also something that, you know, it's kind of itching under my skin. I feel like I can write this. So away I went. And that makes it sound very simplistic. The writing process of it was not that simple. But by that point, I'd built myself up in my head that, you know, maybe being a writer wasn't quite the myth that I thought it was. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I've had my shop for just under four years now and having that exposure to authors right from day one has been really eye-opening. And you're absolutely right, regardless of who the author is and what their background is and what their level of success is and how well-known they are, it all comes down to the fact that there's somebody made the decision to sit down with a pen and paper or a laptop and put some words onto a page. And it's really that simple. That's not that simple. But you know what I mean? Conceptually, it's that simple. I know exactly what you mean. I remember someone saying to me that arguably writing is one of the most accessible forms of art insofar as, as you say, you need a paper and pencil or a laptop nowadays. But, you know, you could do it with paper and pencil and type it up at the library. It would be a lot harder, obviously, than having your own laptop but you know it's not like becoming a famous ceramicist where you might need access to a kiln and I don't know glaze here's where it begins mm. to fall apart so I have no idea or you might need to buy a trombone or find somewhere where you can rent a trombone but pen and paper are more probably more widely accessible that said there are still so many myths going round about writing the sort of people who can or should do it that need to be completely dismantled so that as many people who feel they have something in them to say, which I believe is most people, and who want to do so, can have that opportunity. Absolutely. So let's talk about your, your book. You've mentioned it there, The Silent Treatment, story about a couple that have basically lived together for, well, they've lived together for a long time, but for the last six months, they haven't said a word to each other. It's a brilliant concept, and it really draws you in, because you really just have no idea 
which way it's going to go. And for someone who has read it, I can vouch for the fact that it kept the pages turning right to the end. Where did the idea of the story come from? Because it was pretty unique. Yeah, so I initially had the first spark of inspiration when I read a newspaper article on my commute in Metro, which for anyone who doesn't know is the sort of free morning newspaper that they give out on the tube. And it was about a a little sort of sidebar story, I should say, tiny. Um, It did not get top billing. And it was about a man in Japan who hadn't spoken to his wife for something like 20 years. And this was obviously one of these, you know, stories designed to catch your interest. And I think it had been written about in quite a sort of lighthearted way, but it didn't land with me in that way. I couldn't get my head around what it must be like to exist in a marriage that had effectively gone mute what would make the party on the receiving end of that stay? And it was just an idea that I was playing around with on my commute for so long. I knew I couldn't work with a silence of 20 years. That just felt unfathomable to me. So I shortened the length of the silence. I lengthened or created this long marriage. I came up with these characters in my head. And it was interesting that I knew from the off that this wasn't going to be a story about kind of petty jealousies or really with cruelty at its core. I knew it was going to be a story with this love at its core, a love that was louder than the silence, um, louder than words, louder than everything, really. And when I knew that, I started to think uh, for the reasons for the silence. And obviously, I won't say too much because I hope that anyone listening who hasn't read the book might have their interest peaked to pick it up. But yes, finding out or working out for myself, really, what would be a reason why two people who cared about each other very deeply would have stopped speaking for that length of time. When I came up with a reason that felt realistic to me, it was at that point that I was able to begin to start planning and get some words on the page. It's great. It's so unique and I highly recommend it to anyone. I know why I think everyone should read it, but if people ask you, if people say to you, why do you think that why do you think they should read your book? Obviously because they you wrote it, so that, that would be your first response. But what would you say to them? Like what would your elevator pitch be? Gosh, that is a very difficult one. It is difficult to sell your own work. But I would say that it will surprise you and it will challenge you and it will move you in equal measure. It's a love story for people perhaps who don't think they love love stories. It's a love story for people who don't go in for big declarations of feelings, who believe in something that's much quieter and perhaps more ordinary. I think people will see a lot of themselves in it, even if hopefully they've never been on the receiving end of the silent treatment. I hope there's something very universal in the themes of surviving difficult experiences and finding hope within them and about the joy that can be found in small things and those tiny snapshots that make up our relationships, be they with spouses or partners or with children or friends. Yes, I hope it will surprise and challenge and move in equal measure. Excellent. So now the silent treatment's firmly out there. As I said, it was published in hardback earlier in 2020, but it came out paperback in October. I guess your attention is now focused on book number two. Your second novel, The End of the Earth, is due to be published on the 21st of April this year. What's the book about? So The Ends of the Earth is a story about a woman called Mary O'Connor, She's 40, she works at a supermarket in Ealing, and every evening when she finishes her shift, she walks to Ealing Broadway Station, and there she stands 
with a sign that reads simply, come home, Jim. And she's been doing this every evening for the last seven years. That is until she gets a call from a man who she believes is Jim and suddenly her carefully constructed world begins to fall apart. So like the silent treatment, there is a love story there, but it's also a mystery. It's a novel about community. It's a novel about mental health. It's a novel about something which I think we're all thinking about right now, which is patience and what happens when a weight both in the sense of W-A-I-T and W-E-I-G-H-T, is lifted, how we move on to a different life. I think it's, I hope it's rather, very timely. I hope it's very uplifting. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what readers will think of the ends of the earth when it comes out, as you say, at the end of April. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Where are you in the process at the moment? I I guess you must be fairly close to having the final copies. Yeah, so um, we're, what, uh, about three and a half months away, which feels completely mad in so far as this time last year, I was doing my kind of a big structural edit. But now the text is all proofread. There are early copies out with bloggers and booksellers and media. And I should be seeing, I don't know when I'll see finished copies, probably early March, perhaps. I should be seeing the final cover layout quite soon. It's exciting. I do hope, obviously, that bookshops will be open so I can see it on some shelves there. But even if not, it is really heartening now to know that, you know, readers aren't going anywhere. They're just finding their books through different paths and clicking and collecting them, if not sort of swiping them from the shelves. Yeah, well, we certainly can't wait for it to arrive and we will have it on our shelves and we'll have it on our website. So even if our doors are shut, people will still be able to buy it. And until then and beyond then, we'll continue to tell people about the silent treatment because, as I said, it is excellent. Well, Abby, the time has just completely flown by today and I really appreciate you taking some time out to chat with me. It's been so lovely chatting to you again and I want to just wish you all the luck with everything this year. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thanks, Anne. Take care. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.